I am very joyous and tremendously grateful today to be in this space with Dr. Rachel Allen. Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with me this morning. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. I've had an opportunity to read about you and your work. And of course, the reason I love having these conversations is that I find it is, it's uh, so much more compelling to hear about people's work and their journey in their own words from them directly. So I definitely uh, honor your willingness uh, to do this. I wanted to take a moment uh, before we start the conversation and honor the work that you have done and are doing to help people create more vitality uh, and I'm sorry, more vitality and pleasure in their life and relationships. Oh, thank you. Well, I guess I just, um, yeah, meant to do this work. Like, like, like you're meant to do the work you do. I guess once we find what really calls to us and align with that, you know, then we're really, we're really fitting in with just what we're meant to do. So um, it's, it's my pleasure. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And then I wanted to uh, start the conversation. If I could, I'm going to start a little bit general. Uh, it would be very interesting to hear what your work and your inner journey uh, and how that informs the work that you have done and are doing. If I could ask you uh, what this all means to you at a deeper level. What what my work, my professional work means to me? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, well, you know, it's really about um, connection and community and feeling known and understood and seen. Um, a lot of my work is really about uh, connection, whether it be connection to our own self, our authentic self, connection to our mind-body connection and our inner knowing and our subtle body energy, and then ultimately how this can help us with connection with others, whether it be our, our friends, family, colleagues, partners, um, and, and really helping people free themselves from sort of some of the messages and barriers and repression that prevents us from this connection. So if I had to have an overarching kind of big picture theme around a lot of the work I do as a psychologist and a yoga teacher and retreat leader, it's, it's really to help with this kind of vibrant connection that lets us live in integrity with who we are. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I really do honor that. And I thought what I do is uh, I don't know if there really is a, uh, a certain starting point, but it would be very interesting to hear uh, you know, as far as your inner journey uh, and your work as well, uh, how you the, how you began the process of finding your voice, you know, through your writing, uh, with working with clients, uh, as well as teaching, uh, would be very interesting to hear. I don't know if you can point to any specific, uh, you know, point in time, but it would just be very interesting to hear, uh, you know, how this journey began for you. Well, I, you know, I tried a lot of different things, whether it be growing up, I tried a lot of different sports before I kind of landed on what was right for me and different hobbies. And even professionally, I, I always joke about how right after college, I actually spent a few years working in um, TV news. I wanted to be a, an investigative reporter. <laughs> and so <laughs> and before I really landed on psychology. And so I, I like to think that, you know, especially for people who are younger or going into college that feel this pressure that they have to know what they want to do forever, that sometimes a really circuitous path is actually just fine, too. You can learn from all of those other odd jobs or different things you're doing. Um, we don't have to just know that answer of what we want to do right away. But but I do think for me, um, I I guess I am I was born an empath. So there's that part of me that also just really felt deeply for animals and people. 
And, um, and then the reason I think that I brought in a lot of like somatic psychology into my work. So, so the kind of psychology that brings in embodiment is probably from growing up as an athlete. And I mainly, my main, main sport was cross country skiing, which can be pretty brutal cardiovascularly and in those cold temperatures. Um, so, but I think that also taught me a lot about just mind body connection and embodiment. Um, and then I had my, um, my dad really supported that athletic side of me while my mom was much more of a champion just about really kind of helping me to grow up in what's called a sex positive household, which really means that there was no shame or guilt around just me knowing the reproductive body. And, and she got me all those books. And it was like kind of a really natural, non-shaming, age-appropriate conversation, which I found for you know other people, for my friends, was not the case. Um, so she talked, you know, more openly about things relating to just relationships and the body in a really natural, non-shaming way. So I, I realized that a lot of other people didn't have those kinds of conversations and they did have a lot of guilt or confusion or shame around their bodies or their reproductive bodies or intimacy. So I, I really wanted to help people to feel free from, from all that confusion and, and disconnection. Um, and I also then learned just how much, you know, um, body intelligence and what's called interoception can be ways to like really regulate in the body. So that's why I merge, really merge the two mind body connection with relationship therapy. Yeah, um, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Didn't mean to interrupt there. No, no, go for it. I'm done. <laughs> yeah. And then I wanted to ask as well regarding uh, regarding your inner journey, uh, speaking about, uh, you know, how that started and uh, what you're, you know, how that has informed your evolution over the years. As, as far as as far as your yoga practice and, and uh, when I speak of that inner journey, I don't want to limit it to that, but just, well, you know, what you might speak of, uh, you know, regarding those practices. Uh, my inner journey, I mean, I think there's so many layers, I guess, when I think about an inner journey, like my relationship to self, my relationship to, um, you know, my, how I serve in the world, um, my relationship with others in my life, friends, family, partners. Um, it's, um, I guess since you mentioned yoga, I could start there. It, um, sure. yeah, I, my, actually also that was, I can credit my mom with that. I mean, I was born in the you know mid '70s, and that sort of was the very beginning, I think, of where yoga was starting to come, and mainly more in the '80s as well, starting to come to the U.S. And um, my mom got me into that, and so I just started to do it a little bit as a way to cross train for my more um, vigorous cardiovascular sports I was doing: swimming, running, biking, skiing, cross country skiing. And um, what I thought was what was really neat is that they really cultivated this uh, deeper connection in my body to my breath, to my limits, to my boundaries, to sort of what my body's language was, what it was telling me. And rather than it being about my mind trying to kind of force my body, it was really about having um, this balance between effort and ease and um, a curiosity. It really helps to cultivate a curiosity and um, in, in just like what my body's messages were, what my nervous system was telling me, my breath, you know, my muscles, because now we we understand more than ever now how stress and past trauma can get stuck in the body. So everything it really helped cultivate for me, everything from some understanding, some of the older, deeper 
stressors stuck in my body to just regular kind of day-to-day self-regulation and emotional regulation, which I think is just so invaluable for, for us when we have that real inner knowing and that we can self-regulate and regulate our emotions and our energy. Um, we can take that with us wherever we go. So that, that is, has been pretty powerful. I don't know about you, if you're a yogi as well, and know what I mean, but it's, it's powerful stuff. Oh, definitely. Have, I've, I have, you know, I have done some of those practices. Uh, it, it, it's not been my main practice, but I, I definitely have had some of those, you know, some of those experiences that you're speaking of and uh, definitely see the potential for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then I didn't know if there, uh, if there was anything that, uh, you know, that connects uh, with, uh, with that practice and the teaching that you do, you know, the yoga teaching, uh, anything that that is, as far as how that has informed uh, your practice with clients, if that makes uh, sense. Yeah, well, well, I do actually integrate some yoga in into some of my sessions. It kind of it's it's evolved over the years. At one point, my office had like an aerial silk that hung from the ceiling, and um, that's well, that's not like traditional yoga per se. It it people are blending yoga with aerial silks, but um, it's to varying degrees. I've brought, I've actually brought in also people doing some stretches, some yoga breathing. I now say that I've evolved and I, I, as a somatic psychologist, which means I bring the kind of embodiment, embodiment and the body into the conversation. I would say uh, yoga is my main somatic tool, but it's not the only thing I, I do. And it's not it doesn't mean somebody steps into the office and immediately rolls out a mat and just downward dog and we start talking. It's much more about we start our session with a guided meditation that helps people feel centered and grounded and involves just some gentle stretches paired with breath. Um, and then we might, depending on what's going on in their lives, sometimes there might be a visualization or a meditation or some other ways that I um, cue them in a little bit of breathing or moving to really recognize that interplay between the mind and the body. Um, so it, it, so I literally do some, bring some, you know, movement and yoga and somatic stuff into the session. Um, but, but yeah, how it's just informed me in general as a clinician, um, you know, it, it, yoga led me to a spiritual path. It's also led me to learn more about Buddhist psychology. And I brought that in as one of my main philosophies with my clients to really help them get out of good, bad, right, wrong thinking, or to, to kind of see some of their attachments or see also the ways they might avoid just allowing themselves to um, learn from the emotions and feelings they have. So th those would be, I guess, some examples. Oh, thank you. I, I definitely appreciate that. And I was going to ask you as well uh, in terms of your, uh, your psychotherapy work and work with clients, uh, if I could ask you how, uh, you know, how, how you have evolved as a result of doing this work over the years, anything that you might share about that? Uh, just, you know, looking at the beginning of that career uh, and, you know, to, to present day. I would say that one, one of the main things is a little more freedom from reactivity. Not that I'm never reactive, but I, there is, you know, with that idea that between stimulus and response, there is a space, you know, that, and that's where a lot of like kind of the learning and healing and, and freedom can lie. Um, so I would say that I, because of this sort of deeper awareness of mind-body connection and the spiritual path I've been on, I can really pause and respond versus react. Um, 
most of the time, not all of the time. Um, also, I think just have brought in a little more self-compassion and um, have really not been quick to kind of label or criticize myself, but to be able to stop and learn about, okay, what's coming up from within me, you know, energetically, emotionally, my thoughts, like how I can really soften around that. And rather than immediately seeing it as, you know, discomfort, that's a problem, but see it as something that it's, it's energy that wants attention within me and, and kind of slow down and soften and listen. Um, so I think all of that has helped me just have a little more confidence than just kind of show up and take some risks and <laughs> take some um, adventures and know, I think whenever we have within us these tools to kind of regulate and understand ourselves and learn and, and ride the wave of discomfort, it, it adds to a confidence that we can take with us wherever we go. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And then speaking a little bit, uh, you know, about your writing uh, over the years, I was going to ask uh, just in terms of how that took shape and, uh, you know, how that work has evolved uh, for you as well, just in terms of your message and, and what you're sharing with people. Yeah, for, I mean, I come from a line of writers on my mom's side of the family. Actually, my maternal grandmother was one of the first women in her her paper for her town in Colorado outside of Denver to have a column. And she had her own column. It was called Dizzy Des Says. <laughs> this was in the 1930s. And um, my mom was a writer, some other cousins and whatnot on her side of the family. So maybe there's something intergenerational. And then just having grown up in con, then going to a liberal arts college, a lot of papers and writing. And But um, I actually started myself with a column in two local papers called Ask Dr. Rachel Column. And that was great because it was each each column was not supposed to be more than about 600 words. And so, you know, every month I would answer questions and um, granted, writing a book is a lot more than 600 words, but it's a series of different, you know, thoughts that start with 600 words. Um, and then I, I actually have a column once again now in um, Psychology Today. So if, with the Psych Psychology Today magazine, they have like a really robust online um, collection of psychologists that do columns. And so now I'm doing um, pretty regularly pretty much once a month, a column for them. So sort of the, the bookends of my actual book has been through more advice columns. Um, but I'll, yeah, I'll tell you this, writing that writing a book does require a lot of just steadfast concentration and, and focus. And um, it was hard to spend all morning writing and then, you know, sitting and writing and all afternoon kind of um, sitting with, with clients. And so that was, a new thing for me as somebody, especially somebody who talks so much about embodiment and the movement as medicine. Um, it, it was, it wasn't easy, but my hope is that, you know, it, it can be a message that can reach, have a broader reach because not everybody can afford therapy. Um, so through the audio book or the actual book or the Kindle version, you know, my hope is that there's a, there's a way for everybody to be able to ingest the information. Yeah, thank you so much. And then I was going to ask also, uh, as far as uh, thinking about, you know, thinking about the therapist client relationship, I was going to ask you if there's anything that you might share in terms of, of things that you have learned uh, as a result of sitting with people and, and working with people. 
Absolutely. I think that my clients are certainly big teachers for me. And I mean, it's psych- psychotherapy is a, I mean, it's a really, it's a craft. It's not just a job, it's a craft. And, you know, it can be really humbling um, to just to sit there in the face of people's discomfort or suffering or to have, you know, the honor and the privilege to, to really hear things that are private and confidential that they might not share with others. And so I don't take that lightly. Um, it's, and it, I always just love the healing journey and, and kind of the arc of how things, you know, start with growing from meeting, you, you know, I'm a stranger to them. They're a stranger to me. And that we start with, here we are just two human beings, you know, connecting face to face and well, or at least screen to screen, um, any combination of those. And, you know, really trying to meet each other, you know, like where we're at. Granted, there's a dynamic of, of it's much more about me kind of focusing as facilitator for them. But I always want to make it clear that there is not some hierarchical situation where I'm, I'm, I know more. It's really that they are the expert of themselves. And I'm really there as kind of the outside observer, the compassionate witness who can help facilitate them and help really take away the barriers to that inner knowing that they have, because I really believe that we all have our answers within. It's just that we get, it gets buried behind some of the other beliefs or the other stress or, um, you know, the distractions. So, but I, I definitely find that, you know, my clients, def- they teach me, they remind me about some of the things that, you know, I want to focus on as well, or um, ways to just continue to always be compassionate and, and show up free of judgment. Yeah. And I was going to ask in terms of your work with, uh, you know, with clients, you know, regarding embodiment, uh, do you find that there in some cases there are uh, there on on the on the part of your clients? Do you find that sometimes there are some surprises that they find out uh, that they actually can be more connected than they realized or just anything that you might share just about what it's what it's like to watch people transform in that way? Um, Yeah, well. And the transformation process is, you know, really not linear. And it's sometimes it happens, you know, when I'm not there or after we've even finished our work together or years later or we're in, the, you know, anywhere from within the session to years later when we're not even working together. And and I think that's what is part like, again, part of sort of the magic of the craft is that we tend to have this world where people want the quick fix or at least certainly in American culture, there's this desire for like, you know, rapid transformation and three easy steps. And that doesn't really tend to be how really transformation works. Um, so I think that one of the more magical things about psychotherapy is just how it can kind of show up and surprise us in, at different times in different ways. You know, that the, the power of the connection with the therapist, the power of kind of what happens when people set aside time that sacred time for themselves and their own healing journey. And then just how there's a ripple effect from that. Um, so I think that that it, it just shows up for different people in different ways. So, and sometimes I'm not, I'm not really privy to it. And sometimes I do have clients that tell me, Oh, and they'll quote me something that I said that was actually has really stuck with them or a particular, um, you know, suggestion or tool that they've really been implementing or practicing that then has been maybe something that really clicked for them. 
Um, I get that some of the time, but not all the time. And it's quite honestly, I let them know it's, it's not their job to report back to me what I did or didn't do. I mean, if, if there's something I'm not doing that is, you know, if it's not resonating with them, actually, I would like to know, but they don't have to necessarily comfort me and sort of what I did that maybe helped or not. But my hope is that something does, something does resonate. Yeah. And I was, I was wondering as well, just, you know, over the past, you know, past couple of years with all of the, uh, the stresses that, uh, you know, we've had in, you know, in society and as a collective, uh, anything that you might share that, uh, you know, that you've been, that you've been sharing with clients or just through your, through your writings, as far as how people can find more peace and interconnection, you know, during this time. Well, what I when I was doing some research for my book, uh, one of the things I thought that was really, really comforting is that when people engage in embodiment activities as a group, so that can be anything from, you know, sure, like a yoga group yoga class, but also embodiment in the form of, um, you know, being outside on a hike together or um, going to a concert, uh, listening to live music together, but that whenever there are these group activities with with others with community with strangers that are really engaging in movement or in you know singing and song these these really embodied activities that people research showed that people had a lot more altruism and compassion for others afterwards it could help dissolve some of that separateness and sort of the dysfunctional ego that separates us from others and so that i think is really really neat to hear about. It's of course been something that's been challenging ever since our pandemic to have these sort of group embodied activities, things like spin classes together or hikes together or music shows together, but that hopefully we can kind of get back to that place of having that more regularly, or at least on a smaller scale with others or doing so outside, but that it really then leads us to feel connected, to feel um, you know, when we're only living behind screens or we're not being able to see each other's facial expressions, it's just easier than to have that sense of separateness or me versus you or the othering that happens. And do you find, too, that sometimes it is it is easier to connect with other people once we uh, more deeply establish that connection within ourselves? Yeah, certainly. Absolutely. Yeah. The more that we're connected to, to our emotional self, our emotional body, and we bring in and invite some empathy for our own self, then we're just can be kind of more raw and open to see that in others. Um, and similar to whether it be with with animals too, maybe having connection like that with pets, I think that can kind of foster empathy maybe for others as well. Um, so any sentient being that we're able to really you know, our own starting from our own just raw emotions and experiences. I mean, that yeah, that deeper connection with self, without a doubt helps open us up to connecting to others. But for some people, it's, you know, it's scary, or they maybe have trauma in their body, or they have they were disconnected from their emotional body, they grew up, and they were told that they shouldn't have emotions, they shouldn't have big feelings, or whenever things do arise that are big, you know, emotionally that they should sweep those under the rug. So I find that there's a lot of people, I just have to help them come back into their humanness. And what's natural as a human is to be connected to, to our emotions, to our energy, to our feelings, to, you know, all those signs and signals energetically that are coming up. Um, so it's almost like a relearning little kids can sometimes be much more tuned in than 
adults because we've been conditioned to shut down. And that, that to me is really sad. Yeah, and I speak from personal experience. Uh, one of the things that amazes me about the human experience has been that uh, it is so it's amazing how it is actually possible to live, uh, you know, not in an embodied state and to really not be connected uh, with those deeper emotions. Uh, you know, I may be feeling it some on the outside, so to speak, or just, you know, the kind of the tip of the iceberg. But it is it is something that is I found I, I didn't know if that resonates at all, just in terms of how how human beings can actually live disconnected to these things. Not, no judgment involved, but it is, it, I find that really interesting on, on a certain level. Yeah, yeah, just how much people can kind of get by with not being connected. Absolutely, absolutely. And then I think, I think that is all the questions that are coming up for me. And so what I wanted to do was take a few moments and give you some space and time uh, if there's anything that I've forgotten to ask or anything that you're moved to share, uh, no expectations on that, but just wanted to give you uh, the uh, the space and time to do that. Oh, well, <laughs> I mean, I guess what I'd like to bring up is just that a lot of my work is around um, bodyfulness. So everybody has heard of mindfulness, but bodyfulness is really taking us to that next level, given that we know that we can have older stresses and certainly traumas that can get stuck in our body. Uh, mindfulness is a really wonderful kind of first step, but it, it can leave us a little bit stuck in our minds. Um, and so bodyfulness really um, brings in embodied mindfulness, as well as some self-regulation tools, um, whether that be breathing, moving, sighing, singing, you know, shaking, uh, acupuncture, massage, it really invites in also the body so that ultimately we can reclaim um, joy and, and pleasures of, of all different kinds after stress. Because I think everybody talks in trauma healing about how the goal is to feel joy again, but never really gives enough attention to just how vulnerable that can be, how hard that can be that we think that joy and, and feeling pleasures and joys is just this assumed thing that can come. But it actually, that in and of itself, after stress and trauma and conditioning, can be its own vulnerability to like step into and like allow ourselves to feel good, especially within the US, which is one of the most repressed countries in the world when it comes to feeling good. Oddly enough, <laughs> we have actually yeah. a really oh, yeah. relationship with it. So I guess I would just invite people to kind of um, look into my stuff around bodyfulness, especially if you feel like you are somebody who's been disconnected from your from your physical body and your emotional body. Um, and if you feel like you're, you're somebody who has a hard time just allowing yourself um, different pleasures in life, things such as uh, just allowing yourself to take a nap or allowing yourselves to go and take a vacation or, or go into nature or allows, allowing yourself to just receive. And that this can be something that can be particularly challenging for women um, just by the, the way that they've been conditioned to be more nurturers for others. So I found that there's been a lot of people who have um, a lot of females that have just struggled with just letting themselves to, to kind of receive and have some balance that way. So bodyfulness is, is kind of a big part of my work. And I'm hoping it becomes a buzzword just like mindfulness has become. I absolutely love it. I, that, that's the first time that I've heard it. And it really, really, re it resonates. It really does. It really does. Yeah. 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 Bodyfulness is, and it just the word itself, I feel like conjures up just kind of feeling, yeah, really, um, body full like so we're we're filled up like we're not depleted we're not um you know kind of 
lost for energy. It's, it's like a, it is that vitality and that rejuvenation that we feel from the body up. Yeah. And that's very interesting what you were, you were speaking of in terms of mindfulness, you know, how we really can get lost in our own heads or get stuck in our heads or, you know, that the practice is really from here up, so to speak. And so I really do find that that, yeah, that, that integrating the mind with the body or in, and integrating that awareness is, is something that can be so beneficial. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which you um, lead a lot of like moving meditations. So it's, then that might be also like another way to describe it versus yoga. I, I um, you know, if we think about yoga at the very end of class is when they have what's called the corpse pose where you're just lying there on your back. And there's a reason it's at the end. It's because we've had that opportunity to kind of move and stretch and twist and breathe, sort of get that energy released. And that's what allows us to kind of have the ability to find presence and just, and to be still. And so I am a big fan of really helping people to find the ways that they can kind of have those moving meditations. And I say movement is medicine in order to then get to that place where they can kind of have stillness. And it's, it's true. It's needed to varying degrees depending on the person, but more and more people are restless, you know, whether they actually have ADD or ADHD, or they're just living in a world that tells us to always be busy, busy and productive. It's just harder for the average person to be expected to have um, stillness based meditation, at least to start. So I just like to take away some of the, the, the many shame that people might feel that they can't immediately, you know, sit on the cushion and, and be still in their meditation, that it's okay to, you know, get the fidgeting out, do that movement, listen to your body's desires for that movement. And that can lead you to a place of having more kind of a calmer thoughts and, and being able to sit still later. But for the average person, it's hard to just suddenly do that. Yeah. And as, and as far as, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, of inner joy, one of the things I was going to ask about as well, that this, it, it didn't come up until now. Uh, so I'm just trusting that this was, this was time, uh, the time for that. I've, you find that sometimes clients and not with not, you know, speaking about anybody specifically, but in terms of, I, I know there's this human tendency to try to look for that joy or what it is that we think we're looking for on the, on the outside or that it's out there somehow. And so what I was wondering is, you know, do you, do you find sometimes for clients that it is actually a surprise? Well, you know, if and when they find that that really can can be found here uh, within, you know, within the body, within the spirit, so to speak, instead of out there. Yeah, I think that that can be a really beautiful evolution, like how that happens or the, you know, the, the when and how that might those realizations happen of like, ah, you know what, I just. I was really able to find that peace within, or I was able to allow myself to, you know, maybe grieve. I let the grief move through me and I acknowledged it. And actually now I feel better. A lot of it is just really acknowledging like self-acknowledgement when it comes to our emotions and feelings that goes such a long way. Um, and just as a side note, I, I always like to make sure people know that there is actually a difference between emotions and feelings, even though the two words are often used interchangeably. Oh and yeah. So oh, interesting. As a somatic psychologist, um, we understand that. So emotions are actually what originate in the body. And the feelings are really like what our mind, it's like the mental construct we then apply to what comes up for us. So emotions can be some of the kind of the raw data. It can be maybe butterflies in our stomach, kind of racing heart rate, or we start to kind of sweat or our jaw, you know, some of the different things that might signal like fear or discomfort or, um, you know, unknowing or uncertainty or sadness. Um, and then 
And then we're able to sort of take that information in the body and then label it like, oh, I think that I'm feeling insecure about this because I've never, you know, met this group of people and I'm at this party. And and, and this is this is like where we're able to apply like the, the meaning making out of like what comes up from within. So it's kind of a, a little nuance there. But since I'm always trying to help people to understand the language of their body and have their body be a resource, I do try to help them learn the difference between emotions in the body and, and their feelings. So um but that was a side note to something. I don't know what I, what I <laughs> right before that, though, I, get, I got off on a tangent. Um, oh, no, that's great. I, yeah, I love it because I feel like in, in, uh, in so many ways there, that there really aren't any tangents. I love how these things just, you know, unfold the way that they do. Uh, when, and there was, that was actually, uh, that was sparking something that I was trying to figure out how to, the best way to, uh, to articulate it. Uh, the other thing I was going to ask as well, uh, that sometimes the, the sense of overwhelm, uh, if you have clients who speak about that or just people in general that you're having conversations with about this particular subject, that do you find that in some cases the overwhelm itself can basically come from, uh, you know, there's such a there's so much energy moving in terms of when you speak about the difference between emotions and feelings. Do you find that there is sometimes a feedback loop between those two? That those, you know, those, emo those emotions, that energy is moving a certain way. And then that the mind is doing what it's doing in response to that. And then that feeds more. I don't know if that would feed more emotion. And I don't know if this question makes sense, but. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there, and I think that's, that's a good point because there is always a constant interplay between the two. There's, I mean, that, so a lot of people, a lot of people philosophically argue, well, there is no kind of mind and body. Like it's all one. I mean, it's all you know, when, why, why are we kind of breaking them down into these, dissecting them into these parts? But, but I think, you know, yes, they're all one, but yet they have certain roles, different roles. And, um, and sometimes also what we're needing in the moment is more of like a body up approach as it kind of gets to our mind. And sometimes we need a mind down approach. And mm. so what that might mean is, you know, sometimes we might need our mind, we might need to kind of have cognitively, like really shift our thoughts, maybe with an affirmation or a mantra or something to try to like really um, bring us into like this state of being that, um, you know, say we repeat a mantra again and again, and it like can shift us from something maybe that's more stressful um, or sometimes we might need to start from the body up or we might need to kind of shake and sigh and kind of twist things out or we might need to have containment where we kind of curl up in a ball or we have a weighted blanket we might need to have things that are much more about kind of the body that kind of regulates us and stabilizes us first in order to then kind of go into a way of thinking that's maybe calmer or more uh, rational or or, or going to serve us well so there it's it's a really beautiful thing but they all are always our mind and body are always really in these split second nanoseconds you know really always communicating with one another but we do know that people can like really be blocked from one or the other i mean we we can condition ourselves to be really cut off from our bodies or even sometimes cut off from you know ways of thinking and be too caught up in like kind of the bodily sensations so it's all about balance it's really about figuring out how to how we can really be in service to both and listen to both honor both notice though when we might be you know out of balance with one or the other like are we are we dissociating or are we really cut off from listening to our body because it's like maybe it's painful or there's some you know we're trying to hold back um but but they we're we, we are our best when we are listening to both and engaging both
Yeah, and I just I, and I I must say again that I, I love that term bodyfulness because I'm realizing, and I have to wonder too. And this is something I don't know if there's an answer for this or not, but just looking at a lot of the ancient Eastern traditions and yoga included, what I find so interesting is that the, you know those uh, even the you know yoga practice itself, as far as hatha yoga, uh, the work that we do with our bodies that there was also, you know, part of that approach was also, you know, there was a meditative component to it in a lot of cases. I realize there's different traditions uh, and different lineages as far as the way that yoga is practiced or that is taught. But I do find it interesting how that there, there I really get a sense that a lot of these ancient traditions, there was, uh, you know, the opportunity to integrate, uh, as you speak of, you know, having bodyfulness al along with mindfulness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And, and bodyfulness is, it's a lot of like, yeah, integrating from these ancient wisdom traditions and I'm not reinventing the wheel, just really adding in what we're learning with, with Western medicine right now and neuroscience um, and pairing that with a lot of these really kind of ancient wisdom traditions as well and applying it to our modern times. So that's, that's a lot, you know, a lot of what I think people need to do in order to kind of keep adapting as we face the, the new challenges that we have in modern society. Yeah, it's incredible how a lot of these discoveries, you know, regarding quantum physics, how, you know, looking, for instance, at some of the uh, Taoist tr traditions, uh, the, you know, just the correlations, you know, how all, the, all of these things come together in what we would refer to as this overall human experience. I don't know if that's the right phrase or not, but I do mm -hmm. find it very interesting how we're finding out so much about uh, you know, the nature of, ex of existence and, and, our, and our, con our conception of reality as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot, a lot that we're learning right now. And then there's some unlearning that we could stand to do sometimes too. Ah, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I didn't know if there's anything you would share about that. I, I, you know, that's, I, that's a phrase I've heard or a word that I've heard before, but I get the sense that that is something that's a very powerful opportunity for people. And I, I know even myself included. Yeah. Well, I guess and I, when I say the unlearning, I think of um, in, in my book, which is called The Pleasure is All Yours, the first section is divided into three sections. But the first section is really looking at like, how did we get here in, in North America as far as being one of the most repressed countries in the world and most like kind of disconnected to like our body's wisdom and feeling good in our body in healthy ways. And um, so when I refer to unlearning, it's, it's about kind of unlearning some of the cultural conditioning that really shamed us um, and told us that, you know, our, our kind of our body's messages were, were really kind of primal and savage and needed to be controlled and contained. And that we should it really was only the mind that was the seat of all like reason and rationality and, and wisdom. Um, so, and then there's also within that been conditioning as far as for males versus females. And um, so just some of the unlearning around maybe like our, the intergenerational messages that have been passed down from the kind of the beginning of, um, American culture that sort of limit us and limit our humanness and tell us, you know, we're too much or not enough or, um, you know, certainly there's something to be said for, we can't just kind of all be like wild, free, <laughs> wild animals. So I understand that they wanted, you know, their, their desire for like having some sense of kind of control and, and that we, you know, we need to have some discipline and, in control, but also it's, it's really kind of gone overboard. And, and then with the industrial revolution really telling us, like, I think therefore I am and this idea of oh, yeah. 
that's like led us to be these sort of robots. Um, so some of the unlearning and bringing us back to kind of our animal selves that um, also, you know, are able to really be in touch, like with our instincts, with our drives, with with natural desires for life balance um, that we've been overriding. I mean, we've really been conditioned to override balance, you know, whether it be override our need for rest, um, override our, our need for connection in order to work, work, work. So that's, I guess, a little bit of what I mean by some of the un unlearning in order to come into our humanness. Yeah. And, that, and, and also speaking of unlearning, I was, I was wondering too, just in terms of, of your, you know, your somatic work that you do with clients, uh, do you find in some cases that it's possible to unlearn whatever the mind is trying to tell someone about what's happening in their body? Or, or you know, maybe there's there are habitual, uh, ex, you know, narrations for that, so to speak. I don't know if I'm using the right word, but just in yeah. terms of actually getting out of our own way and just actually feeling whatever it is that we feel versus having a, narr a narrative for it. Yeah, I think that's that's a good point. There is a real process of like practicing and discernment and discerning sort of what is an example would be with intuition. I try to help people really connect to intuition. And a common thing that my clients might say is, well, how do I know what is intuition? That's kind of coming from like that pre-thinking sweet spot within me and in and, and my visceral body. And how do I know what's intuition and what is just, you know, my mind and my storylines or certain maladaptive beliefs that come up? And so that definitely requires some practice and some and just kind of discerning and looking at the situation, looking at the context, listening to the body's language. And it really requires us knowing what are some of those beliefs and storylines that we have that we're, we're stuck in that might not really be our truth. So it's yeah, it's a layered nuanced process to get to get to that place of like kind of um, noticing you know, how are we getting in our own way with, with some of our mental beliefs? And then also, of course, how, you know, I, I'm, I'm not anti-mental <laughs> beliefs entirely. It's just that some of them can be, especially ones that we adopt earlier in life as kids in the, in the absence of maybe answers or when there's stress or trauma, you know, we can create these certain beliefs and patterns that then really don't serve us later in life. So it's about really inviting in some of the, the mind-body connection that can serve us and trying to kind of declutter and move out some of those other patterns and, and beliefs that aren't our truth. Yeah, thank you again. I just, I wanted just to, to, to thank you so much and really honor everything that you've shared, uh, you know, in, in terms of, uh, of all aspects of, of your life and work and uh, very deeply appreciative that you've taken the time to do this. Absolutely, thank you. Oh, my pleasure, Jeff. Yeah, I love having these conversations and um, just love connecting with anybody out there who, you know, maybe can benefit from some of the work I do around, you know, bodyfulness and um, just helping people to like really feel their best. Yeah, and I'll make sure to, I always uh, like to include uh, some information about you so that after people hear this, if they want to get in touch with you or connect with you, uh, I'll definitely make sure that I include, uh, you know, any, any different, any of the different ways people can uh, get connected with you and reach you uh, if they want to speak with you or, or learn more about that. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, they can go to my website. And I also just announced a retreat I'm going to be leading in Panama uh, the last week of February, kind of a new exotic location for me. But I do yeah, different retreats and events. I also have an event coming up end of September about I'm not sure when this airs, but to really help with. Um, embodiment, mind-body exercises to help women with ADHD and how that impacts their relationships. So different things, yeah, I'll post on my website. 
Absolutely. Well, thanks again, Rachel. It was great to meet you and I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Jeff.